Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in one of some of our best-loved and most-hated movies. I'm Frida, and Abby's not here today. Today, we'll be doing an interview with a very special person, because we're in the middle of our break, and as per usual, we are releasing an uncut version of one of our older episodes. This time, it's Altered States, and because the subject is about hallucinogens, psychedelics, flotation tanks. We've actually tracked down a researcher, and this is their area of research, believe it or not, introducing Melissa Warner. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Really interested in both altered states as a phenomenon and the movie, which I watched for the first time earlier this year, which is quite the synchronicity. That is so fantastic. Do you have a title that I'm not putting in? I'm Secretary of PRISM, Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, which is an Australian not-for-profit which is coordinating and pioneering research in Australia. We were the organisers behind the first clinical trial and funded helped fund the first clinical trial of psychedelic medicines in Australia, the use of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, for end-of-life anxiety trial at St Vincent's Hospital, and there are several more trials underway that we're sponsoring, and this is an educational platform where sort of getting the information out there, the educational resources out there, both for government, for the medical field, and for those in need of care as well. That is so fantastic and incredible that we found you. I feel really lucky. Um, So I was actually wondering, yeah, government policy. So um, an education, are are we sort of trying to... um, give psychedelics a a better reputation as something which can be used therapeutically and is it necessarily something to be um, uh, fear-mongering about, would you say? I think in the the medical field, the research field at least, it's it's becoming fairly well established. The psychedelics offer an alternative pathway as medicine, uh, as a process to treat mental illness. What distinguishes psychedelics from other psychiatric medicines like SSRIs or antidepressants is the combination of psychedelics in the therapeutic process itself. So it's not just the medicine, the the psilocybin or MDMA that heals. It's the process you undergo Mm. from preparation, the acute experience to integration. The psychedelics themselves, they enhance the sensitivity to your context. They enhance the sensitivity to the therapeutic process if you are in a therapeutic environment. Whatever environment you are in, they will enhance. So there is a lot of attention being paid to the process around taking someone on a journey from the initial decision to take the medicine through a preparatory process. What are the container, what's the container look like? What's the therapeutic model look like in the room for the actual journey? And then how do you help someone hold those insights and integrate them into their life in the long term? So we're also, uh, I'm also engaged in helping train future psychedelic therapists at the Mind Medicine Institute. Uh, we've done so far two, co- two cohorts of students, around 50 psychologists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, some mental health 
nurses, incredible pioneers helping, looking to, at the moment, since these medicines aren't readily available, support on the ground individuals who are taking them outside of a legal context. Mm-hmm. But very much the hope is over the course of the next five years or so is to really build up the research base and create systems, create, get to understand the processes involved in which we could hold the container to transition these medicines or these, these compounds into a structured and safe uh, process for individuals with mental illness because mm-hmm. it's going to be different for each different kind of condition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a therapy, it's a process, it's being guided by experts that are trained. It's not just a chemical compound um, or a plant. It's, it's a holistic, it's a package, right? It's a holistic experience. So there's also a lot of conversation around decriminalizing or legalizing drugs for recreational use. But I suppose that's more from a safety point of view you know people have a right to know i mean what they're ingesting i suppose but there's mdma and then there's mdma just because it's the same drug it's not the same um, battle to fight right it's like how i like to think about it there's mdma but on on a chemical compound pharmacological level is mdma and then there's ecstasy or Mm -hmm. pills which could include things like speed uh could include many different kinds of adulterants, adulterants that are dangerous, adulterants that don't necessarily help the therapeutic process uh, or actually may make you some energy but also may lead to a further come down mm-hmm. in, in response to that. So there's MDMA, the compound, and then there's ecstasy, which can be all kinds of different mm-hmm. things in there as well. And, of course, again, just with psychedelics, MDMA also requires, I feel like, a really specific context to bring out. Because you can, I guess, I I hear stories of people taking MDMA at, say, a festival and actually having a trauma come up and not not having a space to actually deal with that and it kind of gets buried again. Mm -hmm. So there are, I do think that there are valid reasons. There's different reasons to take a a compound. There's different contexts to take a compound. And I don't think that celebratory reasons are necessarily wrong. It's just that we need to have containers which can hold that, can hold the risks, because there are risks to taking both psychedelics and MDMA, usually psychological risks, and also there are contraindications. And the Mm -hmm. problem with the market, the problem with criminalisation is that there is a lack of education, there is a lack of holding around these spaces. Individuals from, (laughs) I think this is something Altered States has explored, that Humans have a natural tendency to want to change their mind. Mm-hmm. Throughout the eons, humans have sought to alter consciousness, and we do it every day in legal ways, whether that's getting a, a hug from your lover, getting some oxytocin, taking a co- having a coffee, mm-hmm. whether it's having a heap of sugar, yeah. whether it's wanting to exercise and lifting some weights, getting some endorphins right. going. We're constantly altering consciousness to improve our lives, to navigate our, our conscious, to navigate our conscious will and exert our creative uh, energies into the world. Wow. Also to downregulate emotions that get, uh, to get it, that get sort of uh, overwhelming uh, and to sort of self-regulate. 
Yeah. And uh, psychedelics themselves have been used in Western culture since um, the the last time they were integrated well into the Western culture was, funnily enough, quite a while ago in the ancient Greek culture with the Eleusinian Mysteries, where there was a ritual. The Eleusinian Mysteries were a ritual that occurred once a year where the citizens of Athens, those who were selected, so the artists, the leaders, the, um, the thinkers, the philosophers, those who were invited were invited to take a psychedelic over a week-long process involved fasting, dance, reflection, philosophical dialogue, and uh, this was considered to be one of the core civilizing aspects, to quote the Stoic philosopher Cicero, of ancient culture. That's fascinating. But how, how about your knowledge is just amazing. Like the fact that you're just like so much um, knowledge coming out of you just off the cuff is just <laughs> incredible. Um, um, fascinating stuff. It is so fascinating. And um, how, how does the LSD sort of the 60s, cause, because I only know this from like Mad Men and <laughs> you say that um, psychiatrists would take patients on guided LSD trips. Is that um, similar to what you're just describing there, and is it similar to what's sort of being explored nowadays? Yeah, so there was this, this upswell of awareness around psychedelic medicines from the 50s and 60s, which started with uh, a psychiatrist, Humphrey Osmond, and the famous writer, Aldous Huxley. They coined the term psychedelic in a, a poem, they were, they were sending limericks to each other. The, the winning limerick was from Humphrey Osborne, the, the psychiatrist, who said, um, to rise in hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. <laughs> and, and thus the word psychedelic was born, and it, it means in the ancient Greek to, to manifest the mind, to reveal the mind. So it's, it's the mind manifesting itself, be, becoming looser, mm. becoming tangible. And uh, the research began. And what we saw there was some really, really promising early studies. But back then, the standards of science weren't what they are today. Control groups were rare. Uh, placebo was rare. Uh, Double-blinded trials, mm -hmm. not so much. Yeah. <laughs> but the early results were still very promising. But unfortunately, psychedelics got really tied into the counterculture. Yes. And um, this was at a time where there was different forces in culture that moving towards there was the Vietnam War, there yes. was the countercultural, musical, hippie type movement. There was also racial up, uh, unrest and upswelling in terms of seeking equality. And uh, it became easy for the Nixon government to um, label all drugs as bad because it got rid of all their problem groups. There's actually an incredible quote from uh, Enrichman, one of Nixon's, AIDS that des describes how, you know, is it something along the lines of, do we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Mm -hmm. But we needed a way, they wanted a way to, um, to, to be able to control the different uh, quarters of the counterculture. And unfortunately, psychedelics, these things that deregulate the things, these things that break down hierarchies in the way we think, you know, in terms of our own internal processes, they break down the hierarchies of, of thought, which mean that that repetitive thought, I can't do this, I'm not good enough, that can loosen. Uh, all the hierarchies of how we consider our society that, oh, I do this because I'm being told to, or this is the way things are, or well, maybe they don't have to be this way. These sort of hierarchies 
become challenged. Or there's a looser grip, both internally and externally. And this was a threat to the political um, structure at the time. Yeah. This this is a this is a perfect segue to talk about the film because in our original episode that was something we discussed that this film came out in 1980, um, a f- few months before Reagan took office. So America was about to sort of do this um, dive into conservatism that echoes until today. Um, and then we did we did discuss that um, the violence of the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, being obviously linked into the Vietnam War, but also several other events, um, um, you know, the 60s, the assassinations that happened, Martin Luther King, the sort of violent events that took, um, sort of shook the moral fabric of American society um, and led to what, in you know, in a lot of people's opinion, um, was this sort of conservative wave. Um, and that included a lot of... Um, yeah, sort of uh, deregulations and um, unfettered capitalism, capitalism that we're still feeling today. And so the fact that this film comes at that time where America was so responding against the counterculture made us wonder, we were sort of wondering out loud, is this film a, and we'll sort of talk, you know, about your opinion about this question in a minute, is it warning against the use of psychedelics and those sort of exploring the unconscious mind or is it celebrating it? Um, in my opinion was, it was saying, um, uh, don't do drugs, grab a wife, settle down, be normal. Like, and that was the moral was sort of like just being mm. kind of, um, um, uh, we, we left it unsure. So let's, let's talk about the film. Um, altered state. Yes. The outcome there, because I think yes. that's one of the fundamental things. The outcome of the movie is he turns towards love. Love. He was so focused on his career. Ah. He, had an, he had an incredible uh, wife, an incredible opportunity for happiness. He kept turning. He kept got, you know, knuckling down on, on, in many ways, a rabbit hole of intellectualism that wasn't grounded in relational connection. Yes. And yet, yes. After his experiences, he turns towards love. Yes, the radio corridor. Is is the message that don't take drugs or is it the message is drugs could make you go pretty crazy, but (laughs) um, what do they make you turn towards? Well, searching. He's searching. He's obsessed. He's obsessively searching. And the answer is like, why are you searching? Here she is. You know, you've got everything sort of thing. Embrace this brave woman who's just going down on this down, downward spiral with him. But wait, wait, let's just introduce the film first and we'll, we'll talk about it. Just to remind everybody, this is William Hurt's first ever film, uh, Altered States, and he's, he's very young and very handsome. And <laughs> it was written by Paddy Chayefsky. And, and now I'm forgetting. So he wrote, he wrote the novel Altered States. And then I just forget who brought it to life. Um, one second, Ken, Ken Russell brought it to life and is responsible for the imagery that we see. And of course, uh, another thing we brought up was that the special effects team quit in the middle of the movie. The movie was a total nightmare. Paddy Chievsky, Paddy, not his real name, ref- insisted on having his dialogue unchanged. And so Ken Russell made sure that when William Hurt spoke the dialogue, he was either eating or people were talking over him. 
Um, so the movie was definitely um, fraught, but it's something pretty special. Um, and so I guess let's start by asking, you've seen the movie six months ago-ish for the first time you mentioned. First, I want to know, did you like the movie? I did like the movie. I enjoyed the movie. I, I really loved did. it. <laughs> yeah, I think just... it's. I think I think it's a fascinating movie. I, I like the. I like the imagery. I like the, the metaphor. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. The, the the liminal nature of the experiences, exploring these these states of mind that are transitional, that are dreamlike, give us an, an ability. Almost, it is a sci-fi in a way, even though it's not set necessarily in the future. But it gives one the ability to explore uh, myth. Hmm. Yes. And there's a lot of the religious, so so there's obviously some religious things going on there. There's that sort of sex scene at the beginning, which isn't just crazy. But he appears in a doorway initially, sort of like a saint, like a, or sort of an alien or something kind of lit from behind. And, and then he has a religious vision. And in one of the things where he says, when he's talking with food in his mouth, he says that he lost that when his father died, he lost his belief in God. And so it became about uh, searching for some al- alternative explanation for existence. Yeah. Something, something Which we're more. all doing, aren't we? We are all searching for the, the, the reason why? of our existence. Why? Why, why? why is there something rather than nothing? Why exactly? And I think he goes so far back to, and he starts to experience the our agony of being brought into existence um, and he finds it so dark that he decides, I guess, to uh, leave, leave all that questioning behind. And so uh, me personally, I loved all of that. I mean, I've, even though he said it with food in his mouth, um, I did love the, the fundamental questions that were being asked in the film. Um, I loved his, his spiritual journey very much that's something that i i kind of it delighted me i would say and the even the intellectual journey and the emotion there's sort of different journeys going on here there's the emotional journey the intellectual journey and then there's the spiritual journey mm-hmm. and at sometimes there are odds with each other he's in, clearly at the beginning his intellectual life is at odds with his emotional life and his spiritual life is in question mm-hmm and yeah. it's his pursuit of the intellectual that leads him to take these experiments of, of uh, isolation tanks, isolation tanks being a device that was, that were invented by a researcher uh, at University of Pennsylvania, John C. Lilly. Yes, the, the Dolphins. Yes, uh, <laughs> who is a very interesting um, professor, bit wacky. The float tank does live on, and I'm very grateful for that. But he is <laughs> quite well known for um, creating these tanks, which are which deprive you of light, sound, um, any and any sort of other, and you float in them because they're full of magnesium salt. It's a very relaxing experience, good for the muscles, but they're also an incredible um, space for meditation and for conscious exploration, for intentional uh, self development. And also, as John C. Lee did himself, and uh, could be a, a very immersive experience for altered states, for compounds. And John C. Lilly himself was well known for indulging in a lot of ketamine in isolation tanks. Really? 
Yes. Well, yeah. Why is why is isolation take a good a good place for meditation? What what's it what's the experience like? Oh, it's a bit of forced meditation in a way, isn't it? <laughs> sort of. Um, you know, I, I remember my first. I, I meditate daily now, and I've done quite a few silent retreats, and it is an integral practice for me. It is both one of health. Perhaps I will use the term spirituality, though I use it loosely because we don't have a better word. Uh, and particularly one of metacognitive development, mm -hmm. the ability to observe and construct thought forms and patterns of, of uh, artful being. And so meditation itself, when I first went to meditation classes, I remember the teacher, I'd open my eyes, I just forget we're meditating. I just open my eyes, start looking around the room, get everyone else meditating. The teacher would go, <laughs> close, <laughs> close your eyes. <laughs> oh, oh, right, right. Yes, yes, I remember <laughs> Uh, or I'd fall asleep. I was known for storing within 10 minutes of starting the meditation uh, when I first started learning. So in many ways, an isolation tank is it's a forced um, sensory shutdown. There's no light, minimal sound, other than perhaps the sound of your own breathing, which in, in itself is a meditation anchor, and your body is completely relaxed. In meditation posture, you have to sort of, you're, ideally you're maintaining a straight back, you're sitting up, isolation tank, let that go, let go of the body. Uh -huh. There is just the contents of the mind and the sensation of your body floating restfully in the water. And well, but you still, you well, you could still fall asleep, right? You could, you could, you could <laughs> fall asleep. It, it, it is something that happens to novice floaters. Sometimes they do fall asleep. What if you just start to think about what you have to do? I mean, you, you still have to train yourself somewhat to not think about your anxieties or all these other sorts of things that could sort of pollute one's mind yeah that can be that can be a bit of a process and part of that process is kind of letting letting that that stuff sort of move through the sieve of consciousness and just observing as you there's an illusion of meditation or a, a presumption that it's about clearing the mind it's more about noticing all the contents of the mind uh, being aware yes. of all the contents of the mind observing the contents of the mind ideally that would move you towards a state of some degree of what is called emptiness or non-arising or even just a sensation of spacious awareness. Uh, but to get there, often there is that process of moving through and clearing space. And, and that can be in a process of, of just of awareness, of, of, of observing thoughts arising. Mm. So you can get to the point where you notice the thoughts arise in the moment. Ah, thought. Ah, planning. Yeah. Ah, anxiety. Ah, happiness. Uh-huh. Yes, it, this is I my my uh, two the recent therapists and Caroline sort of sort of we tried to do meditation where I you know sort of allowing my my thoughts to float by or meditating that they're floating away whether it's on a river or, or on a paddle boat but the thing for me that was really effective was actually learning how to observe my thoughts without judgment just to observe my thought patterns and in the hope maybe one day I can break the bad patterns. But initially it was actually just about not judging myself. And I feel like once I learned how to just sit there and breathe and just be like, that's what I'm thinking. Interesting. And not mm -hmm. try to work so hard mm -hmm. at getting it away is when I actually started to make the work of really becoming self-aware of where my thought patterns were. Um, yeah. Yeah. Non-reactivity, non-judgment, non really powerful metacognitive tools mm. that we can use to create ease and create space in our experience. Yes. Um, 
And it's, so reducing yeah. time travel, sort of, are you present? Just noticing yes. presence. And when you're not going, ah, time traveling. <laughs> time traveling. I like it. Um, it's funny. Um, I have just a sort of super random thing. I used to do this facial with this lady, Maria, and my grandmother sent me to her and she's just the best. But then they started to bring in this new technology called these LED lights where they shine these incredibly bright, bright lights on your face and they do weight sort of a bit of fabric and then stones on your eyes because it's so bright. But I found it was never enough to shut it off. And it was so bright that I, I, in order to sort of cope with it, I would sort of slip away into this meditative state just because I needed to escape my senses. Um, and it, it would bring it in the end, it was too scary. And I, I, I stopped doing it. I spoke up and I was like, this new thing you're doing, please stop. But it was funny. It was like, the opposite of no, it was so much light and I, and I, it was too much that in order to block the light out, I had to detach from my vision completely. And that might have been like a kind of a dissociation. Yes. And I would just be, my mind would just drift. It was just sort of a very strange experience. And then when they turn it off, I'd be sort of jolted and I had totally had forgotten where I was and it became kind of ecstatic but um, all in all, terrifying. Um, wouldn't do that again. Also, I think it's kind of rubbish. Like if you did it, that every single day, maybe it would do something. But once a month, I mean, come on. What was it for? Skin repair. Okay, yeah. Red light skin repair. I mean, I've heard that it, it, there is some evidence. Um, I did look as per, I, I went to the library and I found some journal articles just looking at this and what I found was small sample sizes, but it does have to be done like daily in order to yeah, see that's anything. Well. So it's something yeah. that requires frequent, sort of yeah. almost having one at home kind of thing. Have one at home and, and really for things like acne, like terrible or acne. Rosacea. Right. Yeah. Um, and for me, I'm like, uh, I don't, it was just, uh, I knew, I, I knew I was being upsold. I knew they knew. It was just upselling. Okay, so altered states. Now we've spoken about the flotation tanks and what are they. So let's go into um, – so his flotation tanks is what starts. He's just suspending in a flotation tank for um, a very long period of time trying to induce an altered state. Can you explain to me and the listeners what, what we mean when we say altered state? What does that mean? Well, I guess, in all, as I said before, we're constantly altering our state. So it could be the direction of um, the energy from caffeine. It could be the relaxation or the emotional awareness that comes from meditation. And it could be the sense of expansion or connection that comes from taking a psychedelic, a sense of love and safety that comes from MDMA. It could be the, connect, the sense of familiarity and love from cuddling up with a lover, watch, watching altered states. Well, oxytocin release there. So the, the older states are something we move into and out of all the time, but there are right. and there are some that are more desirable than others. Mm-hmm. And it, it is important to to note the difference between an altered state and an altered trait. Because well, often when people take compounds, they are seeking to change their state. But what we really want, really in our lives, is an altered trait rather than experiencing a moment of relaxation or joy, we want to be a more relaxed person or a more joyful person. Right. There, it's a therapy. So there is a difference there. Altered, okay. altered states 
can give us an insight of the direction we're hoping to grow and move into. Altered traits are something we, from that insight, from that contact, from that doorway, we integrate them into our lives. In the movie, it sounds like when you're saying, that, yes, there are some altered states that are more, um, you know, less desirable than others, but it seems like this is something that is induced often and regularly. But in the film, it's almost like he's talking about it, like it's this thing he's like have to dig so far to induce, and if he induced it, it would be radical and dramatic. And I don't know yeah. what he might be. Ref- I mean, that so the the, in, mm-hmm. the intellectual journey he pretends he's going on, although between you and me, it's more of a spiritual kind of yearning. But it is the idea that there's cellular memory, which links back to shared memory, and so he wants to what the hell is he actually talking about when he's saying I want to induce an altered state because it doesn't sound like he's talking about what an altered state really is. I guess he's talking about a particular kind of altered state, which I would, I would say is similar to what we describe as a peak experience in the literature. That was Abraham Maslow's term. He's the psychologist who developed the pyramid of needs from sort of emotion, sort of like safety emotional safety, connection, well-being, to self-actualization and self-transcendence, the hierarchy of needs. So Maslow described peak experiences as being these oceanic experiences of profound, deep meaning, transformative upon the experiencer uh, that actually tend to, the more frequent peak experiences you have, the more likely you are become a self-actualizer and a self-transcender. And in literature, they're also described as mystical experiences, experiences that are exhilarating, that have a sense of insight, a sense of connection, a sense of uh, being uh, the small self in in context of a larger framework, uh, insight, a sense of uh, spirituality, a sense of um, awe and wonder, a loss of the sense of self in the context Mm. of something much grander much larger. And these are, um, we, we do, in the research on psychedelics does show that mystical experiences seem to be linked in some way to the therapeutic benefits that people experience from psychedelics. You can, there are other benefits from psychedelics, but having a mystical experience is an indicator of long-term efficacy of the treatment. Well, okay, this is, this is making a lot more sense. Um, so the idea of a, a profound peak experience is what he's after, a particular kind of altered state. When, I'd say it's, yeah. it's kind of like it's a mystical experience. Mystical experience, yeah. Mystical peak. I, you know, some, people he, he, like, some people like the term mystical because it, it recognises that spiritual element. Often people say that, that I saw God, I met God, mm, or I met some kind of fundamental something. primal force in reality. He um, is searching. He which, is searching for the inner God. Yes. He no longer believes in an external God. So he's doing all of this because he is desperately searching for something, I think. Um, Seeking to fulfill yeah. a spiritual void. A yes. spiritual void that the lack, that the, you know, our secular society that, as you mentioned before, has, that has, is a capitalist society focused on consumerism where there are huge um, disparities between socioeconomic groups. 
we have a void. We have a lack of ritual, a lack of holding mm-hmm. and transition in life from, you know, the point of birth to being young adult to an yeah. adult to um, being an elder. We, we don't really have these transitional rituals anymore that once were part, once were the fabric uh, of culture, and that does leave uh, a bit of a... Hmm. Empty space. Yes. Many, many of our experiences. We do have this need. We can't deny it. I like to use the word spiritual and I'm, I'm stealing this from my friend, Aaron, who actually was interviewed a couple, couple of interviews ago, um, that we not being, you know, what you, you know, I'm not associating the word spiritual or spirit with the institutional religion, but he is of the opinion and I like this opinion, which is that there is something that emerges from being alive and coming into existence, which is not the emotional and it's not the mental, it's the spirit. There is a spirit and whether that emerges just from your lived experience or whether it embodies your trauma or things that hurt you, like what, when you have a prolonged trauma, like what gets hurt? Is it, is it a mental pain? It's it's a spiritual pain. There's some other element that I feel cannot be categorized as these sort of typical categories that people agree on, like mental, physical, medical, psychological. So I use that term because I feel, it feels like it fits some part of a human experience. Part of the human experience that we, that science uh, may be, is beginning to at least finally tackle <laughs> it, it, through the research on psychedelics, we are seeking to tackle and explore this component of experience which cannot be defined purely by the physical, cannot purely de- be defined by the biological or even the psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, but, is, said- but is in itself a synthesis of those three and even, I would say, the philosophical. Yes. Um, yes, that's you said it that better than I did. Thank you. And yeah, and emerges from just existing like that. There these ideas that they're emergent properties, um, an emergent property of being alive and existing, being aware of your existence is that these things emerge consciousness, spirituality. Um, and in, in saying that, and so back to the movie where this idea that, um, you know, he's searching, He's wondering if there's some other shared truth. And so this, the tank becomes, you know, not radical enough to induce such a mystical experience. And so he teams it with um, a cocktail of drugs. And we were not exactly sure before what it was, probably LSD. Um, But then it isn't enough again. At some point in the movie, he's been inducing himself in a drug drug state and then in the tank. So he travels elsewhere to find your magic mushroom. And we were discussing before we went on air what you thought it was it trying to be, although it didn't look exactly like the thing that you think it was trying to be. Explain. It really looks like um, Fly Garrick, which is that fairy tale-esque red mushroom, red coastal leaf maybe with the white spots. <laughs> Yeah. Which is poisonous if you eat it, but if you boil it, if you go go through certain po- um, processes, and it is psychoactive as muscamol, which is mildly psychedelic, but it, it is also more of a relaxant or a, a deliriant, potentially not particularly psychedelic. And based on his experience, I think that 
it looks like fly agaric, but the experience itself seems more like psilocybin, the, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. But I think the exact the exact compound that he takes isn't isn't potentially the importance here. What it is, it, it's a doorway. It's, it opens the doors of his perception. Mm-hmm. It's something that gives him a, a sense of connection to something much vaster, more and more primordial, more long living, noetic, truer than true than uh, waking consciousness. Okay, so then this is so the idea that he is his mind is now open, and that, I mean the the hallucinations when he's when he's off wherever he is in the Mesa, taking magic mushrooms, and he starts to hallucinate. His hallucinate hallucinations start to take on something different, and you're bringing and so this is before he's in the flotation tank. This is just taking the mushrooms. He is awakened. Um, please elaborate on what you've just said as opposed to the doors open and he's starting to become aware of, of something beyond consciousness or? Well, I'd say it's, um, it's a different lens of consciousness. What we, what I can say, I can't say for the movie in particular, because I, I feel like with an actual psychedelic, it's rare that people see things that aren't there. That's more in the realms of uh-huh. delirium, such as scopolamine, adatura. Seeing things that aren't there entirely is quite rare. Behind your eyes, with eyes closed, dreamlike imagery, very common. And what we see with psychedelic research is how psychedelics work. Is there's a few, we don't know fully, but we have a few insights. One is that there is this center of neuronal activity called the default mode network which is active when we're daydreaming, active when we're ruminating about the past or the far future. It's also active when we're thinking about ourselves, our most, our sort of our most common self storylines in our brain. Oh, if only you had done that, or make sure you do this this week, or why have you been doing these things? And oh, these little storylines we have, not good enough to do that. This is all part of the default mode network. And for some people, the default one network could be quite healthy. Maybe it encourages you, maybe it helps keep you stable. But for a lot of us, there are limiting factors in our default mode network. This is a region of brain area on the midline of the brain. Um, three central hubs that go across the uh, parietal and into the frontal lobes. And what we see under psychedelics is there's the deconstruction of the default mode network. And mm. regions of the brain that Whoa. don't usually talk to each other begin to talk to each other. And you know, there's that old adage of neurons that fire together, wire together. (laughs) And we see that neurons that don't usually fire together start to talk. And that could be an opportunity for the rewiring of different ways of of being, perceiving and behaving. Oh my goodness. Um, This could also be underpinning some of these more, this sense of deep connection that occurs on a psychedelic, a sense of deep connection both to yourself, your inner world, but also the external world, nature itself, and other people. Mm. There's a greater sense of connectivity, there's greater connectivity seen in the brain, but also in our experience. The other thing that occurs is that there's um, psychedelics work through what's known as a 5-HT2A receptor, which is a serotonin receptor, which has been shown to uh, be pivotal and key in behavioral change, strategy change. So we see in animal studies that uh, this is very, this is not the kindest uh, scientific experiments, but 
rats that undergo maternal separation, isolation, stress uh, training, there's an upregulation of the 5-HT2A receptor, an increase. It's, a, it's more in demand. It's required in times of stress, also in times of hypoxia, so low brain oxygen, the 5-HT2A receptor upregulates in times of crisis because it's essential for, for potentially engaging in ways that are adaptive when it's needed. Now, we live in a world where we have these tonic stresses. Uh, there's huge, uh, 45% of Australians will experience mental illness in their lifetime. So if it's not you, it's me. Mm-hmm. It's not the person next to you, it's the one on the other side or yourself. Um, and mental illness is, is often, a lot of mental illnesses can be described uh, as having a common, one common factor is, is, a, is a, fix, a fixed way of looking at the world, a lack of psychological flexibility in certain domains. So we see that psychedelics will create this, may help facilitate a more flexible more adaptive, reflexive rather than reactive <coughs> psychological state. That is truly fascinating. So there are uh, common sort of pathways or fixed fixed uh, state, fixed, what, what did you call it? What was the term? Fixed. Can I say rigid, rigid ways of thinking. Rigid or... ways of thinking that, that uh-huh. um, get, you know, and there's evidence for this seen in um, brain imagery that um, new pathways possibly or are, are opened where neurons that don't usually speak to each other that speak to each other and this opens a new way of thinking and then talking about that there is a commonality to shared mental health experience and that there is some suggestion that using a you know a particular therapy that in, involves a particular compounds done correctly might just disrupt this way of thinking and that there that is a shared experience. It's something fundamental about the way we live and something fundamental about this therapy that um, he, you know, the, look, the film, it's, it's batshit, but he hints at, um, at um, the idea of a shared experience, something that links all of us together. Yes, in the film, it's based on something that's a bit, okay, fine. But the, the idea that you're saying, firstly, that there is a shared idea of connectedness. Um, maybe, you know, if we're not thinking in that fixed way and we're thinking in another way, we might suddenly be open to being more present and connecting with people and things around us. Um, so, he, you know, it, that is true, that there is shared experience and that, um you know, if you take the same drug in the same way, in the same therapy, you might induce, um, a sh- you know, a shared experience. Um, yeah. Well, I actually have a quote here from a trial participant using psilocybin in a depression trial. And it, I'll, I'll say the quote because I think it really fits in here. Like Google Earth, I had zoomed out. For weeks afterwards, I was absolutely connected to myself, to every living thing, to the universe. That's that's just one quote. There, wow. there are others that are similar. Uh, this is something that we that is seen in these trials that there's this massive sense of connection to nature uh, in a deep, deep way. And you actually see that after a psychedelic experience, people people's experience of of, of sense of nature relatedness, of being a part of the earth, mm-hmm. being a part of an ecosystem versus 
uh, I guess, a, a voyeur of nature, separate <laughs> from nature. Uh, they are actually intrinsically a part, a part of that of ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And we are a part of the ecosystem. Yes. And that the, there's nothing outside yeah. of nature. So the, there, you know, I feel like in the there's last, nothing with the industrial coming out of the Christianity, which I guess sees the earth as this limbo state be- between, um, you know, b- before heaven, uh, and that the, there's that sort of residue of that line of thinking still in our culture, and then the industrial age uh, being this great pressure for for man to dominate mm. nature, Use it uh, up. to assert our um, authority over yeah. nature, which I think nature is this t-shirts uh, a few times now. We cannot. Uh, that, 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 that is that's not necessarily going to happen yeah. all the way, or even the right way to think about it mm. for our insanity or for our own well-being. Uh, we also see that you know uh, it's incredible what happens to the microbiome, just nature-related na- ecotherapy, spending time in nature, how it changes the microbiome, how it changes mm-hmm. well-being. Um, Psychedelics re- remind us of that, and and I think uh, his experience in the movie does remind him of that. Now I think it's a, it's very allegorical, it's very Hollywood. Sure, yes, it's actually what happens is very is very dramatic, and almost I mean I was laughing. Me too. <laughs> I, but I, I was laughing out loud. Like, uh, it becomes a regression. 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 It's funny that they they yes, as you were talking, I was like, well, the, the movie kind of does that. It just does it in such an obvious way. That you know, it's something, but it, it makes it animalistic and wrong. But actually, he's going back to some fundamental mm, nat- humanity, being a human, being an animal, part of nature. I'm cooperating suddenly. Animals in a zoo. I'm imagining yeah. that animals are just wild, and I'm going to capture. I'm going to kill one. And yeah, it's totally silly. And um, but yes, he he starts to connect, um, disassociate from his you know daily worries and starts to connect with something deep and true and if you know nature is true it's there we are a part of it you can say we can submit to its higher power if you want to use that language but the thing that i'm sort of hearing listening to you is that there is a common thread there is something common that has been induced by the modern world. There is p- new pathways which we do need to find um, to reconnect with the truth of our existence as part of something bigger and feel present. This this is really, really important. <clears throat> Mental health is a big problem and a big um, uh, burden on society. Um, one second. <clears throat> need a real cough. Um, and and what you, the work that you do is one way of opening a door for people, I suppose. Definitely. I think so, something else with the primal aspect that I want to explore, which is so a trial that I'm working on that we're hoping to start next year is with a very particular psychedelic called 5-MeO DMT. Now, what's interesting about 5-MeO DMT is unlike psilocybin or LSD, which psilocybin lasts about four to six hours, LSD up to 12, 5-MeO DMT is about a uh, 40 in the way we're administering it, which will be intramuscular. It's about a 45 minute experience. So it's, it's very contained. It's very short. And it's also known to be the most potent or one of the strongest in terms of the quality of the phenomenal experience. One of the strongest psychedelics in terms of um, the, there is the often people, and particularly if you go to a music festival and take a psychedelic, or if, if you're doing it in a social celebratory setting, 
people often don't have a mystical or peak experience because they're very much in the world. They're interacting. There's not really the opportunity yeah. uh, to have that. So it's really the set and setting of the therapy for psilocybin that allows it to occur and, and potentially the dose. With 5-MeO DMT, it's almost guaranteed that you will have an ego death <laughs> experience. Almost guaranteed that you will have a mystical experience. So it could be a hard one. It could be a challenging one. If, or it could be a deeply, profoundly blissful one. Uh, or it could be a bit of both. Really? Um, but what we see often in this experience, and you can sort of you can look up experiences on YouTube, um, Hamilton Morris has an incredible documentary where he explores... Uh, his own first experience with 5 DMT. He's a pharmacologist uh, and also shows some other people's experiences. There's often quite a strong somatic experience. People start shaking, thrashing about, screaming, mm. rah! <laughs> <laughs> it's quite awesome. And those who have a grand meditation practice sometimes go into full lotus and stay there for 45 minutes. <laughs> but um, there is a whole range of experiences, and they can often be quite somatic. And when I say somatic, I mean that there's a physiological component which is very raw, um, and all we, all we do know of our nervous systems is that our nervous systems did come from the savannah, did come from the ocean, even the, as early as the ocean. We still carry these reptilian brains, you know, in, in, our, in, our, lower, in our lower brain regions, and uh, they um, are responsible for a lot of our behaviours, particularly <laughs> if we're under stress, particularly if we feel under threat. The reptilian brain is, fire, is living and firing well and living, living strongly within each of us. And particularly over the last two years with the trauma that globally we've experienced, there will be many instances where uh, fear responses, uh, traumatic responses, do, uh, are, are hugely influential in how we behave. Now, if you look at the, sort of the graph of a stress response says sort of, you know, upregulation, sympathetic nervous system comes online, fight or flight comes online, and you either have the option to fight your foe or run away. As, but then there's also the overwhelm point where the body risks, like, I'm, I think I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. So at that point, there's either fawn, I'll try and please the offender and maybe they'll let right. me go, or there's play dead. Okay. There's, um, there's sort of dissociate. Uh, play dead, and you become overwhelmed because sort of there's sort of like the nervous system actually goes into shutdown, and that that's where this is this is sort of the, how PTSD can occur if someone is enters one of these states, um, and then after so let's say an animal nearly dies, gets to the overwhelm point, somehow escapes. This is a deer with a lot of you know on the savanna, holding on deer, but a zebra. <laughs> they run away. And what we actually observe is that they actually have their own way of releasing their energy. Animals often go and they shake. They shake it off. They, they, once they're safe under a tree, uh, they shake. <sighs> um, shake away that, that, that fight or flight energy that was accumulated in their nervous systems and their bodies. Now, human beings, we don't know. We don't, we've evolved all these, all these ways of thinking and all and planning and philosophizing and talking to our therapists. But... <laughs> Is this, we don't actually have the ability to engage with this reptilian primal brain a lot of the time. They actually just might need to shake for a while. Yeah. Or try. Wow. <laughs> and uh, what we see in observational research of 5-amino DMT is often people will shake for 45 minutes or they'll scream or they'll Amazing. cry uh, and they'll feel a lot better afterwards. Um, wow. Yeah. So we do primal. have a primal, a primal nervous system living 
living underneath these these these, these layers of evolved, more evolved relational um, philosophical gray matter in our frontal lobes. Mm-hmm. We, I think yeah. I like the movie. He does bring attention to that. Yes, he does. Yes, that we do. We've evolved in such a way that sometimes we ignore or disregard or have evolved past primal expression and this movie he regresses and he and it's like yeah it's it's shown in a funny dorky way but the idea is get in touch with primal and there's there's so few experiences in our life and i and i feel like natural childbirth is one of those rare experiences we still get where we can be primal and of course this gets taken away from us as well. Um, but that's why, you know, to really embrace, uh, you know, these uh, big experiences, whether they are coming with extreme pain is such a, is such a gift because it allows us to tap into something that is deeper and profound. Yeah. I think that's something interesting too about the approach of psychoassisted assisted therapy is it really is one of approach of moving through discomfort, of moving through pain, mm. where there's been a long-standing, uh, I feel like, pattern in Western psychotherapy or psych- Western psychology, clinical psychology and psychiatry in particular, where it's more about um, you know, dampening down, shutting down, quietening, mm. um, you know, trying to cognitively change through linguistics, um, the way we feel or through pharmacology, damping down like a Band-Aid, mm-hmm. antidepressants, whereas psychedelics are really more about amplifying, accepting, connecting to, embodying and moving through. That is so, you know what, this has been so interesting. Interesting doesn't, we're coming up to the hour, so I'm going to start to wrap up, but interesting is too, is too detached, but um, it's, um, really beautiful listening to you talk about all of this and we're sort of crediting, the, giving the movie much more credit than we had initially that it does sort of uh, have a through line which is not sort of out of the realm of reality for what psychedelics can do for, for people. Uh, and they do... They, they won't turn you into an ape. They won't. <laughs> they did connect. Um, I remember reading an article in the Australian Review or something like that years ago was about a couple, you know, they had gone through cancer survival, but uh, MGMA was being used in therapy. And I believe sort of using the blindfolds, sort of tapping into the flotation tank thing uh, in large doses to help the couple recover from this extreme trauma, acknowledging that not everybody gets through these things. Well, sometimes it's terrible. And it was, this was like a decade ago. It was a fascinating article um, to, to see that, there are real human experiences that we, we just don't know how to cope with. And um, this is one of the ways that, that is accessible to people more and more to sort of learn how to get through things together or alone. But, you know, in the movie, it's, it's the couple coming together at the end, which is beautiful. It is beautiful. And I do like the ultimate message is, is a letting go of, of that disconnected pursuit that he had mm. in the movie connection yeah. what i think is interesting is well what if what if he had had a psychologist assisted therapist to help him through that journey needed <laughs> yes. to regress to an ape and run madly around town like that is a metaphor in a way for psychosis we have it like we are, there is a term that's used in the field which is like a, a spiritual emergency 
um, rather mm, than the word wow, psychosis. Spiritual emergency. But perhaps if there had been more holding around mm. him, perhaps if there had been more preparation, um, more integration of his experiences, it wouldn't have gotten so, so out of control. Dark. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I think that's, I really want to do flag here that I wouldn't, rec- I still don't recommend in- individuals with severe mental illness or even uh, who, are, who aren't supported to engage in these therapies because mm-hmm. uh, there's so much more to learn and there is, a, and, and there is so much, such a need of support of community holdings. Yeah. You know, these come, he went to visit a tribe. He went to visit a Mexican tribe and, you know, that's what, that's, you know, um, Gordon Wasson in the sixties, went and met Maria Sabina, who was a, a mushroom, a magic mushroom guide for her culture, for the Mazatec people. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole structure around that. There was a whole community around that. Now, we don't necessarily, if you don't have that, I think that's a key component that's missing in, in the West. So just, just being aware of, of mm-hmm. that need for holding. Holding. Wow. Um this has been really educational and warmed my heart. Um, I had so many just like things in my head, like, well, and I forgot all my questions and I might have to, I might have to ask you some more questions another time just for myself. Uh, but it's been truly educational and eye opening talking to you. And I think this was a wonderful one hour chat and I hope that, um, everybody who listens really, really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for giving me your time. I know you're very busy and I appreciate it so much. It's been wonderful. Lots of fun. All right. All right. Bye everybody. We'll be back in two weeks with alien. Actually, we're starting off Mm -hmm. 2022 with aliens. That is going to be amazing. And we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.